Hello, I'm Sarah Ann Landman, journalist advisor at Munster High School in Munster, Indiana. I advise Cryer, the newspaper, and Paragon, the yearbook, both of which were advised by 1997's Yearbook Advisor of the Year, my teacher and mentor, Nancy Hastings. Nancy's the guest on this episode's Yearbook Wise podcast. When I was a student at Mrs. Hastings and her editor for the 2005 Paragon, she shaped me into the advisor and adult that I am today. I'm always grateful for her wisdom and guidance. I know the advisors listening today will get a lot out of her advice. Okay, here's the show. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Yearbook Wise podcast. My name is Mike Simmons, and I advise the Tesserae Yearbook in upstate New York. This is the second of a little bit of a doubleheader episode uh, that we're producing this weekend, conversations with the 1997 Yearbook Advisors of the Year, Paul Ender, uh, which is just ahead of this episode in the feed. And uh, in this episode, Nancy Hastings of the Paragon Yearbook and the Cryer Newspaper at Munster High School in Indiana. I want to uh, offer up a, a bit of an apology and a thank you to my dear friend, Jim Jordan, who helped me correct uh, that the Yearbook Advisor of the Year awards were first granted in 1995, uh, the first to H.L. Hall, for whom now the award is named. And we interviewed H.L. a few episodes back. Uh, Paul and Nancy were awarded in 1997, not 96, as I had said, I think in this interview and in Paul's. Uh, but it was actually Jim who was recognized in 1996. Now, he was in a previous episode of the Yearbook Wise podcast with me on conventions and all the benefits of uh, taking your kids on the road. So you can look forward to a conversation with Jim uh, down the road a piece. Uh, but again, Jim, apologies there and many thanks for the, uh, for the fact check. It's always important in journalism. This episode with Nancy uh, was just a delight to record. We just finished up and I think that you're going to enjoy it as well. She is an absolute fount of knowledge and uh, of, of advice for young advisors. Um, she did all 38 years of her career in the same classroom, the, the pub at Munster High School, and created uh, award-winning book after award-winning book, but really had her sights um, set and, and focused and her priorities straight in the right place. Um, she was about her staff first and positive staff culture first and a great book for her school first, recognizing that if the staff likes each other and enjoys each other, then they'll work with and for each other. And if they are working with and for each other to do great journalism, then it'll be a great publication for the school again first, um, but then can go on to win awards and be acclaimed nationally as the Paragon has been uh, for years. So, uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with 1997's co-yearbook advisor of the year, Nancy Hastings. I, I had a great conversation with Paul um, yesterday. Um, you and Paul Ender were both recognized in the same year, right? That is correct, yes. Didn't really know Paul that well at the time when we both got it, but we've become great friends since. So tell me a little bit about the work that you were doing with your yearbook staff. This was at the Paragon, right, at Munster High School. At Paragon at Munster High School. I was there for uh, 38 years. Where oh, that's I remarkable. I the yearbook and the newspaper and had, uh, had a great time. It was a great school system to work for. Was that the only school that you advised at? 
It was the only school. I graduated from college and started at Munster and never left. And let's let's start there then. What, tell me about your, your entry point into your book. Was it before college even? Did you have experience in scholastic journalism as a high school student? I, I was very, very lucky. In high school, I um, had Patricia Clark. Pat Clark was my advisor, who you probably haven't heard of, but she was certainly one of the... Uh, I guess rock stars of advising back in in the in the sixties. So um, okay. I was very lucky, and it was because of her that I ended up at Ball State University, um, where I got involved with journalism, and I worked on the Orient at Ball State as well as the Daily News. And I graduated from there in nineteen seventy two, and. Amazingly, there were lots and lots of jobs opened in 1972, and I ended up in Munster. And had you known when you were in high school that you had a call to be a teacher? Um, at the time, not in high school. I really fell in love with journalism. I remember that first story, that uh, my first byline and how exciting it was. I remember in college when I got my first college byline, and I remember sending it to Pat Clark and how excited I was. But somewhere in that first year, I kind of decided that I really liked um, the excitement of other people seeing their names in print. And so I fell in love with the teaching aspect. Did you start in uh, journalism right in 73 with that first class at your at your high school? Uh, and yes, and it was 1972. I started in the fall okay. of 72. I okay. In fact, I'm trying to remember, since I don't have an English degree, I remember graduating, um, getting ready to graduate from Ball State. I had a, a journalism major and an art minor, and I went through placement and I remember the placement counselor saying, you're never going to get a job. Journalism needs English. You'll never find a job with art. And amazingly, I did. And I think that you might know this, but that's the same degree that, that Paul Ender brought to the table as well. He was in art as well. So it's interesting that both of you were honored in 96 and you both came with the art degree. Tell me a little bit about the program uh, as it was when you arrived. When I arrived, um, it was a huge program. It was, you know, uh, Munster High School at the time probably had um, 1,500 kids, but there were a lot of kids involved because there weren't that many activities that you could get involved with. Journal um, yearbook and newspaper were classes, but she had a huge feeder program with um, to do promotional things. And then, um, and then it kind of grew um, where photography, I think photography was probably added as a class in the early 80s. And so I ended up teaching beginning journalism, yearbook, newspaper, and photography that I took over after my really good friend had to give up the photography because department chair. You had a lot of spare time on your hands, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> That was an interesting life. And also in Indiana at that time, you had to have your master's in five years to renew your license. So my first two years of teaching, 
I just thought, oh, okay, I'll do this. And then, you know, then I'll go on and get a real job in journalism. And after two years, I figured I was here to stay. So I had to start my master's and rush that through or I wouldn't be licensed. And it strikes me that you have advised or you, and you did advise um, 38 years in the classroom is is a remarkably long tenure and you saw a lot of transition. I'm sure we can get into the advent of digital publishing and, and digital photography and the rest as we get deeper into this conversation. But how would you describe your yearbook in that 72, 73 um, era? What was the paradigm like back then? <laughs> really? Simply awful. It's kind of entertaining. I keep thinking one of these years I am going to shoot that old yearbook and and just even compare it to a reasonably good yearbook today because, you know, back then we didn't even have an index. Okay. Uh, we, you know, when the I remember the captions were simply awful. In fact, when I see some of those early editors, we still joke about some of those captions. They were phrases, three-word phrases. Um, and so it wasn't as journalistic as they are, even though... When I was in high school, I mean, we had we had an early an early national award winner, but when you transition from a student to teaching, you don't quite grasp all that goes into it. Right, right. And when did you start making gains? When when were there some? When was there some evolution for the Paragon and for you well, as an advisor? I will remember. I went to my very very first um, NSPA JEA convention. In fact, it was that very first fall. It was November of 72. It was at the Palmer House, as a lot of them were at that time. I remember I had 26 kids by myself. Chicago was all of like 30 miles from where I lived, so it was very close. But I remember walking into the lobby, and um, everybody just looked at me and said, oh my God, she must be new, because I had so many kids by myself. But we started then. We started going to sessions. Um, we started getting kids to go to workshops. My very, very first gold crown, and I think at the time they were trendsetters. I don't think they were pacemakers yet, was um, 1984. So 12 years of development to, to establish you know, a, a recognized program. I think newspaper maybe was even two years earlier. So both of the yearbook and the newspaper were, were became very journalistic, which made me feel good. And I think we buried the lead there a little bit in that it really, it took some time. This does not happen overnight. No, I'm always amazed when I go teach advisor classes, you know, the young advisors I want to have a winning publication. What do I have to do? Like it's step one, two, three, and magically there's your winning program. It really has to be established. The kids have to do the work. It's not the advisor's publication. And so it's a matter of instilling the pride and the work ethic. And that takes time. It absolutely does. You've gotten us up into the into the early 80s. Um, obviously, we're working with dark rooms uh, at that point in time for photography, and you were teaching that. Um, how close are we to the advent of a little bit of desktop publishing or preparing copy on computers? 
we were onto the computers in 1986. Okay. And tell me about the, the that introduction to your, <laughs> your lab. Oh, my goodness. We had, I think, five of those um, small Macs. And we were always on the Mac where you used to have to switch the floppy disks back and forth to save things. It would take forever. But it was interesting because it did not save time. It's wide out, but it didn't save time because when you got into digital, um, you just could edit to death. You could keep making things better because it was under your control. Um, we got involved. We used PageMaker right away, um, the very beginnings of PageMaker. Um, and it was just, and we had five computers that I can remember vividly. And, then, and about how, how big was your staff in those days? Oh, probably 20, 22. Okay. So you kind of timed your way on through. We were not digital. We didn't go digital for quite a while um, as far as photography. Right. But but the yearbook and the newspaper certainly did. If we step back just, just one step and take a, a broader view of Paragon, you had shared that you made a, a, a statement-making book, produced a statement-making book in 1984. Um, was it the journalistic development and storytelling or um, ad event of. Oh, it was definitely, it was the storytelling and it was, it was establishing our personality. The yearbook theme at that time was no joke because it was, we're from Munster, Indiana. People used to joke about, you know, if you traveled that, you know, are you from the Munsters, the Munster cheese? And so the whole, it was a fun personality where we could have pride in who we were and that we weren't a joke, that we were more than, um, you know, cheese and the TV show. Right. And by that point, about 12 years into your career, were you more active on the national scene as well? Oh, yes. Yeah. Tell me about that. I had gotten involved on the state level. Um, I had, once again, my Pat Clark, my high school advisor, pushed me. It really was not an option. And so I got involved with the Indiana High School Press probably in my second or third year of advising. When you get involved with Indiana High School Press, you are on the board for seven years. Okay. You start at at the low level, which was, I don't know, publicity. Oh, historian. You went from historian, I think, to secretary to a, a vice president, president-elect, president, and past president. So they really got their hooks into you. They did, but it was <laughs> kind of nice. I kind of liked knowing what was going on, and I liked having a voice. I think that was kind of important, too. And so it was through um, getting to be involved on the state level. I, I At the time, also, I'm trying to think I taught my first workshop at Ohio, Chuck Savage found me, found our book, and I taught at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, my very, very first workshop. Um, I credit a lot of my 
early context to Chuck Savage, as so many people my age certainly do. Yeah, he, he was an icon in scholastic journalism. He was an icon, and he he knew how to discover potential. And I've always understood that as being so important that part of my job with young advisors is to develop their potential so that they want to get involved. I want them to establish their programs in their own school to be journalistic and to serve their readership. But I also want to see the future of scholastic journalism, um, you know, continue and be as strong and not get shut down by so many of the problems that so many high schools face, either through censorship, through financial issues. So if I can help advisors along the way, I'll do all I can. You maintained, and, and forgive me for uh, if I got any of the, the fact-checking wrong, but you maintained a, a long relationship with IHSPA. Um, oh, yes. Does long. that continue today? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm very involved. I, you know, I've been, after I served my seven-year stint on the board, and then I came off, and then... I got involved again. You can get, they added um, some um, representatives at large. So I think I've been back on the board three or four different other times for a few years at a time. And those professional networks really supported you in developing as an advisor, um, became part of your, your network, um, support network, resources. Um, I know that I've come to know you through conventions. You and I both, we saw each other just down in San Francisco. Um, what do you think those experiences uh, and, and those connections that you had did for you and your students? I think it is crucial for advisors to reach out um, because in most schools there is a journalism teacher. There is one advisor. And you can get so swamped by, by not understanding. You need an answer. And it's those connections um, whether it's through your state organization, through national organizations. The joy of going to a convention sometimes is just hanging out in the in a hospitality suite. So you can connect with people. I, I meet new people. There's always some young advisor who starts out, you know, a little bit shy, and then we get into talking. I think those connections are crucial to help you survive. You know, 38 years is a long time. To, to advise. And, and I survived pretty happy. I survived, I think, relatively sane. <laughs> and I kept my marriage. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, you, you mentioned uh, a couple minute, moments ago, um, censorship. And yes. um, forgive me for not knowing, in, in let's say the mid 80s into the 90s, the state of scholastic press rights in Indiana. But did you ever face any fights with your administration? Um, no, they were, uh, yes, I did. I shouldn't say that. We got, um, it was right before Hazelwood. It would have been, I think Hazelwood was 88, maybe. That's correct, yes. And so it was probably 86. We were really good. We got to cover all kinds of things in the newspaper. We covered lots and lots of issues. But there was a, a school board member who, um, I don't know, question something in the paper. Fortunately, another school board member, I had her daughter on staff, 
And she contacted me the next day after that school board meeting and said, heads up, you might be in for some trouble. The school board member is, you know, looking into things and doesn't understand why you're doing what you're doing and why you're free to do all this stuff. So um, at that point, um, I had a wonderful newspaper editor. Oh, my God, Ted. And they went to the next school board meeting. Even at that time, it was students who had the rights, not the teachers so much. Right. I remember Ted going, and uh, we used to always cover school board meetings for the newspaper anyway. But Ted spoke up, and he, and he answered the questions. And then they were getting into that where she wanted to rewrite the policy to make it so that somebody had um, a review of what we were covering. And this was still right before Hazelwood. We got the local newspaper involved, the, the Times of Northwest Indiana, which is a wonderful paper. That editor came to the school board members, spoke in behalf of, of training people to think. Um, and so at that point, they, they were still going to study the issue. Lo and behold, that January, as this has progressed along, Hazelwood came through in January. We were trying to write our policy. We had started in the fall an agreeable policy between the school and myself. I had contacted um, Dr. Lewis Engelhart at Ball State, who was a very, very good friend of mine, and certainly a First Amendment defender long before everybody else got into it. He helped write a policy that was agreeable. Um, we had submitted it, and lo and behold, Darn that Hazelwood decision came through in January, right before they were ready to have their meeting. I think it was the end of January, the 1st of February, to agree on the policy. So it kind of fell back in a way. Um, but luckily, the policy that ended up going through um, was not as stringent. As, I mean, they, they recognized Hazelwood, but it still allowed us to be journalistic and to cover objectively and fairly things that needed to be covered. So we came close, it got heated. I stayed out of it as much as I could. I was involved with the writing and working with the administration. But, um, you know, we, we came close. But since then, I had had the most wonderful administrators. I, I know I sound like, you know, the angel talking for school administrators, but they understood what we did. Right. They appreciated a product that fairly covered. I had the, a principal who's now the assistant superintendent used to tell me he would much rather be interviewed by my kids than the professional media. <laughs> he knew my kids would get it right. Right. And tell me, how did you negotiate with your students and, and your editors? Um, I'll, I'll speak with my students about how effective a newspaper can be uh, in scholastic journalism on those one or two week or one month stories. Uh, and then in the yearbook, I, I try to help them understand we're talking about you know 20 year stories. So knowing that there's advisors who are listening as yearbook advisors who also have a foot in the newspaper world, what advice do you give to them in working with their editors to identify, you know, does it go here in this publication or does it go over here? Um, we always went after um, news. Obviously, news value is the first and most important thing. 
um, to confront that true news with a time peg are very newspaper oriented. Um, yearbook, when you're looking at where are you going to be in your 10-year class reunion and you're looking back at it. We had an issue back at Munster High School. Oh, my goodness. Maybe the late 70s. There was a lot of vandalism going on around the school um, where there was great joy in breaking windows for no good reason, but somebody was enjoying it. And so then they would, it got so expensive, they were just um, putting up plywood. And we we covered it in the yearbook. We called it the Plywood Palace. And, and because that was such a part of the history of that year. Right, right. And, um, you know, once again, it was factually, objectively reported. I've often said that there's no such thing as controversial stories. What makes them controversial is poor coverage. Number one source is always going to be the administration side. It's not just the student side. Many times it's the parent's side. And there are so many sides to a story that have to be covered that if it's covered fairly, we've stayed out of controversy. Right. We cover the things that, you know, we're not always yay Ron Munster. Right. Tell me about, you, you spoke about discovering potential and how people um, saw that and drew that out of you and supported you in your early years and your development through the, the middle part of your career. I know that at some point or another, you started having students graduate from your program, uh, go to college and become teachers themselves. And I've got to think that that was due in large part to you inspiring them and being present in their lives. So I'm going to, again, ask you, don't be too modest here, um, or we can just go with just the facts. But do you have a sense of, of how many students of yours that, that maybe you've stayed in touch with them are out in classrooms now? I think the greatest joy of Facebook is being in contact with former students. Okay. On a, um, oh my goodness, teachers. I've had, and student teachers. I was very lucky to train. I have a lot of student teachers. And I think at one point I covered, we counted this up. Currently teaching, I have two, three, Three that are current teachers that are, that were former students. I have one, two, three, four, five student teachers that are currently still teaching. Um, I have tons of kids who went on into um, you know the professional press. Right. Yes. Yeah. We shouldn't overlook that at all. Right. Um, no. Not and, and do I have it right that, that one of your former students is now with the Paragon, isn't she? Absolutely. Yes, she is. Who, who will that be? That would be Sarah Ann Landman. She was editor of the uh, a Paragon, and uh, she went off on to college and majored in, um, she majored in, believe it or not, art history, because she really liked that art history in French. And when she graduated... We stayed in contact. She went off to teach English in France and fell in love with teaching. And we were corresponding when she was trying to teach English to these French middle school kids. And I was giving her tips on how to engage middle school age kids. And 
she just came back and decided I, and all along I kept saying, you need to do this. You're perfect. You need to do this. And she said she didn't want, she didn't want the time commitment to journalism. She wanted the French. <laughs> so she came back and she had the French and she picked up English at IU. And, um, but once she got back, she needed to pick up the journalism too, because it was so much more fun. Right. Nothing against English teachers. They're wonderful people. Absolutely. But, but journalism adds a little bit of fun to your day. Adds a heck of a lot of headaches, but it adds a lot of fun to your day. As you look back, um, and to, I'm going to say we're probably in the, in the late nineties or so, uh, maybe a little bit later. And, and let's just, actually, let's jump forward for a second. When did you leave the classroom? I left the classroom in 2010. Okay. So you, you left mainly because my husband was ready to retire. He also taught at a neighboring school. And for and I, when he first decided he wanted to retire, I said, I'm not ready. But then I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? I won't be able to travel. I won't be able to have fun. So, and I could still stay involved with journalism without all the day-to-day headaches that drive teachers crazy, all that paperwork and all those silly little things. Now, with that date, 2010, does that mean that you had just about a decade of a full digital operation? Oh, we were full digital. More than a decade. Oh, my goodness. Okay. We were full full digital. You're talking with photography also? Yeah, I would say so. In the yearbook production? Oh, in the year, well, in the yearbook production, like I said, we were, we were probably, um, we were yearbook in 86, 87, probably by 90, we were full yearbook. We were long gone beyond the copy sheets, the whiteout and the triplicates. Um, so that would have put us in 20, 20, golly, 26, 20 years. Okay. And then how did you make the switch to digital photography? Um, well, we had the cameras and we were doing both the digital photography. Uh, in fact, the photography, I'm thinking back once again, the English department chair, who is a really, really good friend of mine who taught darkroom photography. Well, I still had a couple beginning journalism classes in your book and newspaper. I mean, he's the one that got me moving to digital uh, and when did we go full digital? Oh, goodness. I'm having trouble remembering. It had to be in the early 2000s. Okay. Or by 2000. I mean, we went, we got hooked into Nikons. He was a Nikon man, so we became Nikon people. We had had Nikon film cameras. Um, and then once again, once you can find out, I think having background, darkroom background makes you better with digital software, I think you appreciate what Photoshop can do and why it can do it. Right. Uh, but golly, what, did we go fully digital? Hmm. Probably maybe 2003, 2004, I'm guessing. Okay. And your books, the Paragons right through were, were still statement making books on the national scene. Yeah, they were, you know, it got to a point, I truly believe that you don't set out to create an award-winning book. Okay. You start out to create a book that best serves your readers. 
You're there to tell stories. You're there to make the stories interesting. And you make it interesting through good design. And you make it interesting through great photography that captures those magic moments. You don't start out and say, I want to be a gold crown yearbook. That's never going to happen. And new advisors don't quite get that. Because they want the the list of of checkboxes, right? They want it. They want to build their resume. I don't know. It just doesn't happen that way. It happens when you serve your readers. Other people recognize that, wow, this is really a nice book. Right. What were some of the things that your program let go of over the years? I I, I might be baiting you into it, but back in the early days, was Paragon a, a senior superlatives kind of book? Um, probably in my first two years, but we got rid of those really early because then the newspaper took them over it. Okay. And when in this, in fact, even today, they end up in the senior issue of the newspaper as a list, but they're very, they're, I shouldn't say they're very journalistic, but there isn't anything potentially libelous. You know, I can remember one year when they used to do the biggest cheater back in my earlier years. You know, I had a phone call from, um, you know, because kids do those as jokes. Well, biggest cheater is you're going to try to become a lawyer. You're going to run for office. That's going to come back to haunt you. So it was always a conversation when the new editors would come in and want to do senior superlatives. I'd say, would your mother be proud of you if you were the biggest gossip? Right. You mentioned a couple times uh, talking about the the stress of our lives as advisors, um, late nights on deadline. I'm not sure if you're a coffee drinker like I am, uh, but over the years, what are some of the things that that helped you through? I know you, you've spoken already about your professional network and the friendships that you developed, but are there any uh, bits of advice that you would offer to newer advisors who are still finding their path in this journey and finding some balance? Yes, you can get so committed to the journalism room. I can promise you, I'm not especially proud of it, even though it became our red badge of courage. On that first big deadline every year, we used to spend all night overnight in the room, and we would be heading home at 7 o'clock in the morning when the rest of the school was coming in, and we were going home to sleep. It was this red badge of courage about staying forever. I'm not sure why. I think... um, It's really interesting. As I got older, kids will work to whatever time frame you give them. Yes. You say we're leaving at 10 o'clock. They probably get serious at 7 o'clock about what they need to get done. And so it took me some time to back off that stupid midnight stuff that we used to do. And we used to do that a lot. Um, I think it's also important that, you know, I go to exercise two nights a week. I started doing that in the early 90s. And then we got too busy with deadline and I kind of gave it up. Oh, for about five or six years in there. And once again, I mean, I had a very, very supportive husband who understood. He coached basketball. It helped immensely that he was equally busy. Um, but I decided I'm getting back my Tuesday and Thursday night exercise class because that mattered. And once again, so they couldn't stay past 5.30 on Tuesday. It didn't hurt anything. They worked to the level. 
and I setting. Mean, Sorry, go ahead, Nancy. I was going to say, and you also really need to learn how to let go and empower the kids. I can remember to empower your editors and your students that they make the decisions. I can remember with the newspaper. Oh, my goodness. One of the earlier years, oh, we had some nasty faculty member who used to get the paper and would take out her red pen and circle the mistakes in the issue of the paper when it came out on Friday and anonymously put it back in my mailbox, you know, on Monday morning. And it was like, you know, hurt me, hurt me, hurt me. And I would go back and I would just say, all right, here's what she's done this time. And we, of course, we knew who it was, even though she never signed it. And so the kids need to be empowered to be responsible. And that's tough. What was that process like for you to develop that ownership in your staff? Slow. Okay. Slow, but it was also very interesting that when you win an award, even if it's the nice thing that I always loved about the awards is that so you get second class, it sounds like you got second and that, and that means you got second, and it makes you feel good. I think that advisors have to submit their publications for critiques. Okay. I think you learn from the critiques. You learn to be better. I, I want you to know one of the things I, I, I dislike, one of the things that I do the most now is judging. It takes me so long. But I'm a good judge. I want to judge because I knew starting out, we devoured that critique. We didn't agree with everything, but I would photocopy the critique. Even my last years of teaching, that critique would come in. We would sit down and would talk about. And we learned. We learned things that mattered. It strikes me that's like opting into your Monday morning newspaper in your mailbox with the red pen all over. It's just voluntary. It is. It's voluntary, but but if you want to grow, you have to teach also that your students, It and, and it was crucial to get them off to workshops. It's not only the Munster way. There are so many other things out there that might be a better way to approach something. Right. And so it was that slow learning process to get them to, to feel good about what they were doing, and we can do it better. I've noticed in my own staff having them, the inflection point for us was in 2007 when we started going to summer camp and Mm -hmm. my kids realized that there was a bigger journalism and and bigger yearbook world out there that really just fired them up because they were able to, A, acknowledge like there's, there's geeks and nerds over there that like the same kind of stuff that we do and are willing to put in the hours that we do. Um, and then, you know, if it was bouncing a theme idea off of a advisor from California who they had never met before or bonding over a game of Frisbee with a staff from upstate Michigan, those were phenomenal times for our kids to, to grow and enjoy each other. Um, you talked briefly about Ball State um, a ways back, but they've got a really active um, summer camp and workshop, right, that you've been involved in? Very much, yeah. I think I've been teaching at Ball State for... Uh... It's 1982, I think. And the growth that you saw in your own staff through those experiences, uh, I can imagine the, the, the beats here, but what do you think were some of the big takeaways from summer camp experiences for your staff? 
Well, I think learning and bonding. Okay. I think probably one of the most important thing is that the new new leaders coming in have to understand how to bond. They have to know how to depend on each other for decision making. And if you want to empower your kids, they have to feel like they can do it. And so that was important. The knowledge was crucial. Um, goodness, themes have changed so, so much. Coverage have changed so much. And the only way you're going to be exposed to to what is good journalism today is to go out and see it. Right. We all have wonderful yearbook reps. I think they do a great job. But they're still, still a person. You need to go out and see what's going on out there. And that's that's important. You talked about themes changing over the years. As you reflect back on 38 years with the Paragon, um, I asked the same question of Paul. Tell me <laughs> about uh, the Paragon books that your staff's produced. Is there one that's just nearer and dearer to your heart for some particular reason? Well, I really like that, the No Joke book, because it was fun and it had an attitude. Okay. Happy had an attitude. You know, that we didn't take ourselves too seriously, but but we understood what we were doing. Um, and we've had, I think, the books that had a little bit more playful fun while still covering the year um, kind of stand out. I remember one we did, a kind of, not a Mad Lib, it was an early Mad Lib. It was probably in the late 80s where it was a fill-in-the-blank kind of thing that the kids got an idea from a Hallmark card. And so it was, um, you know, and we just, I think the books where you, where you really tried to understand who you are. Another book that stood out, I remember, um, we had, the kids had gone to workshop and they came home from workshop with a theme that they wanted to work on. But that particular, you know, and we were summer delivery, so we had a little bit more time than spring delivery books. But that year we came home, and uh, at the opening of school, um, we had, I think the football coach's uh, son died, who had, who had been suffering through a long illness. He was only 13 years old. We had another um, student athlete who died of um, um, bone cancer. And he died in September. And so the theme was a very yay-rah, upbeat. I can't even remember what the original theme was going to be. But it was a very positive yay-rah, school spirity kind of theme. But the school year was not. It right. didn't open that way. And they had to throw it out and start all over. And it ended up being a story to be told. And it covered some of the hardships of that year. Um, along with, you know, the, the, the fun things. but it, So that one stands out. And I'll never forget, because the cover of that yearbook, um, around the nation, everybody thought, this is the ugliest darn cover I have ever seen. But the, the kids at Munster loved it, because we had been doing remodeling, and it was new carpet in the building with this weird pattern of circles and, 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 and bars and we took the pattern from the carpet and added <laughs> So it was so monster. It was probably our most popular cover. And the rest of the nation thought it was the ugliest thing they had ever seen. And I think I'd like to drop back about 10 minutes in this conversation when you said it can't be about winning awards or working a checklist. You've got to make the right book for your school first and all else is secondary. That's right. 
That's right. And they loved it, you know. And so that that stands out because that was that was a more serious book because the years suddenly had become so serious. That's phenomenal advice for an, an advisor too, who's newer to making sure that the voice and the spiritual core of the book matches the the tone and the story of the year that your students could adjust and recognize an opportunity uh, when it was right there in front of them. And the need. There was no way we could have had this happy-go-lucky book. Right. Absolutely. Do you remember in your time as an advisor, um, we, we just talked about you know, books that really stood out to you. Is there a story um, or a, a, maybe a reporter that, that was working on a particular story that really stands out and, and stick, has stuck with you um, through those nearly four decades in the classroom? Um, perhaps it was uh, risky with the coverage or it just took a, an extra amount of work, but something that was published in the book that has really stood up over time? Um, let me think in the book. Um, yes, well, one that stands out, he was, uh, um, he was, I, I had, it was started on newspaper. I had part of the joy of, of newspaper it, with my art connection. Whenever you, if you needed an editorial cartoonist, there are great cartoonists that are probably shy and, and quiet little kids sitting in the art department. And so I got a hold of two cartoonists that year who um, were talented, started as editorial cartooning. Oh, my God, what a sense of design they both had. One now works for Disney Pixar. I mean, he's still a, a, an outstanding friend. The other is has his own um, design studio, still very involved with comics. And it was more from a design standpoint. We took so many chances. I will never forget. And um, John Kutzinger, a lot of people know John Kutzinger from uh, from Jostens. Oh, my God. John had had Paul at workshop, and he just encouraged Paul to go off the limb. Paul became the designer for the newspaper. My most creative year taught me to let loose with what you think are are the set standards. There's a time and a place where you can have some fun and play. Right. So Paul, Paul and Tom stand out that way. Story-wise, let me think. Um, I had some wonderful, wonderful editors, so many good editors. Um, and I guess we work with, um, I, I only had one co-editor. That ended up as a disaster. I was a very young advisor on, new, on your book. These two girls were really best friends when they got appointed. This was in the late 70s. One was really strong in copy. One was really strong in design. They made the perfect blend in my mind. But at that point, we didn't do job descriptions. Uh, no, you needed them. Yes, you do. So I, I knew what their strengths were, but I don't think it was ever really communicated. That year ended by February. February on a, on a summer delivery book is key, crucial time and they were barely speaking to each other they ended up not um, as as close to being enemies as you could that year i felt horrible horrible guilt that was a young advisor who didn't understand i could have stopped all that a long time ago but job descriptions matter people have to know what you expect of them you can't assume they know why they're there right you got into relationships between students there 
um, as we start to wrap this up, um, tell me a little bit about the staff culture on Paragon and what you did over the years to support a positive staff culture. What was it like to be a member of your staff where you did the kids go out and go you know, staff bowling or catch a movie together? It sounds like camp was big for bonding. And I believed in pub bonding. The, the journalism room was called the pub. And so yearbook and newspaper, I was not going to let yearbook and newspaper compete against each other. We were a culture. We were together. And so, yes, we would do, well, I mean, obviously we did the end of the year banquet, which was fun. We would do, we did all kinds of things where we would, um, you know, I can remember on deadline, on late night deadlines, and, and everybody was getting so stressed now, mid to yearbook, that we would just say, all right, everybody off the computer, we're going to the park and we're going to go play on the swings. We need to get away from here. We need to have a break and, and go back to being friends. And so um, we, obviously we did workshops. I believed going to conventions was crucial because part of going to a convention, yes, were the classes, but it was also getting to see each other as friends. And, and it was getting to travel and getting to eat together. We'd, we would go out to dinners a lot. We would eat in the room a lot, but get away from the work and just eat. We, of course, we always celebrated birthdays. My absolute best book editor, Jason, is a lawyer now in um, working for a children's agency in D.C. And Jason was the one who added to the staff list, what's your favorite food? So when it was your birthday, we only ate your favorite food. Wow. So, uh, yeah, they were good friends. And that's why it's kind of nice now. I mean, even later this afternoon, I'm going to a baby shower for a former yearbook editor who's having her first child. They're friends. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, listen, I've got just one more um, question for you. And I want you to I want you to think about young Nancy as an advisor in the uh, early 70s, um, but also about all the maybe first or second year advisors or like the advisor I just met in San Francisco who... Uh, whose administration had the foresight to get them to San Francisco and they're starting to advise in September. Um, what, what advice would you give yourself or a younger, newer advisor um, as they're about to embark on a journey with scholastic journalism? I would say that, and I, when I've taught advisor classes, I always say pick three things that you want to accomplish in your first year. Three things. If it's, we want to write better captions, then make that a goal, but only three. If you say, oh my goodness, I just want to do this, 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 you set yourself up for failure. If you want to do something, take baby steps and, and it's going to take you a little while, but there's nothing wrong with baby steps. Um, if, if staff bonding is crucial. And I know I talked to a young advisor on that one. You know, her staffs just were fighting with each other. And I said, next year when they come in, don't worry about the product so much. Make it journalistic. But if your goal is to make your staff like each other, then make that your season, your, your year goal. Because once they like each other, other things will come. If you want to accomplish 10 things, it's too much. Three is doable. I love it. 
I love it. That's fantastic. Nancy, thank you so much for taking time with me today on the Your Book Wise podcast. I, uh, I've always enjoyed running across you at conventions and sorry that we never have more time to spend together, but I appreciate you taking this time today. All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. We'll talk to you later, friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nancy and uh, hearing her advice. I think the advice for advisors who are listening out there who are perhaps newer to their programs or about to embark on a journey in scholastic journalism, uh, that advice about working on three things and not being overwhelmed by all of the changes that you might anticipate making or all the needs that your publication or staff has, you know, if you can focus on an appropriate list and, and keep um, that focus pretty tight, and set some priorities in a given year. Uh, even me, as I'm about to go into, I think my 17th year in the lab, um, I know that we've got some improvements we can make with our staff at Tesserae, um, some things that haven't been problems in the past that maybe were issues this year, things that we need to work on. If we try to tackle all of it at once, it can feel absolutely overwhelming. So uh, listen to and heed Nancy's advice well. Start small, stay focused. And, and once again, uh, I think that promotion of a positive staff culture for your students and you is absolutely key. Sometimes you got to step away from the pub and go out to the park and jump on the swing set. And as Nancy noted, eat, eat a lot. Well, friends, that's going to do it for this episode of the Yearbook Wise podcast. Coming up soon in your feeds will be a conversation with Aaron Harris of the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology near Alexandria, Virginia. Aaron advises the Techniques Yearbook and is known across the country for being the umbrella queen. We'll talk about umbrella coverage and concept books uh, with Aaron. I hope you'll enjoy that episode. Remember that you can find or share this podcast through Apple iTunes and Google Play. I'd appreciate it if you would leave a review. It will help other advisors, staffs, and your book reps find the podcast in search engines. You can tell them that they can download the podcast anywhere you can subscribe to or download your podcasts. The Overcast app and other apps both work. And if you want to offer advice or suggestions, constructive critique, or just be in touch to let me know how you're applying the podcast and you're advising, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at iteachyearbook at gmail.com, and you can follow and like the podcast on Twitter at, at yearbookwise. That's yearbook, W-H-Y-S. It's a great place for you to be able to share it with your staff members, reps, and other advisors in your networks. We're sliding into spring break here. First day of spring break. Looks like there's blue skies and warming temperatures up here in upstate New York. So we'll leave it there. For now, friends, good luck. Be well. We'll talk soon. Mm -hmm.